Our guest on The Year That Made Me Now spends a lot of time hanging upside down, defying gravity, making pyramids and thinking of new tricks. It's fair to say the nine to five of this young Indigenous man looks a fair bit different to the day job that probably you or me or anyone listening has. Performer Harley Mann is a Waka Waka man from Queensland who grew up on Gadigal country in New South Wales and he's a circus artist. Harley is the founder and artistic custodian of Melbourne-based circus company Najinang and the creative lead at Circa Cairns, both First Nations-led circus ensembles. He put on his first show before he'd even graduated. Harley Mann, welcome to the year that made me. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, Harley, was I on the money that your workday is probably different from the average nine to five uh, office job? Could you give us a bit of a, a, a snapshot of how your days go? I think you're exactly right, Julian. It is very, um, very different. Mostly, it doesn't start at nine. Uh, it starts <laughs> a little bit, a little bit earlier than that, and it continues through to a little bit later than five. But in terms of what a kind of a, a day in the life of an acrobat or a circus performer looks like, we spend a lot of our time falling on our faces and trying new ideas physically, artistically that have, that don't, that defy gravity, defy logic, defy you mm. know the things that we've seen, and that's that's why so a lot of that sort of trial and error exists. But we we have a, a rigorous training schedule. We warm up. We, we train skills, we train specific disciplines. I do a lot of group acrobatics, as well as some aerial rope, um, manipulation, things like that, um, all with the kind of purpose of finding new and exciting ways of, of telling physical stories. The process of trial and error sounds like a very interesting mix of a sort of dialogue between mind and body, but when it comes to error, Harley, can it be pretty painful too? Yeah, I think it can be pretty painful. I mean, obviously, we go through a lot of steps to, to make sure that we've got mats and we've got spotting and we've got a lot of kind of steps in terms of keeping the physical safety. I think what, what you're kind of alluding to, which is a really interesting point of view, is this kind of, we don't like failing as a society. Like, it's a, it's a thing that we go through school learning not to do. Um, we spend hours mm. and hours studying to, to not fail. And yet our job is all about failing. You know, it's always, I think if, if you're not failing as a circus artist, then you're not doing your job correctly because you're not pushing the boundaries. You're staying in the sort of things that we know are safe and, and achievable. And that's never where any interesting art or any provocative thought comes in. But that in terms of pain is, is quite grueling to, to throw your head against the wall until, until something beautiful comes out of it. Holly, how did you get involved in circus work? So I started, I've been doing circus since I was five. I started in a, a youth circus, a community circus based in Sydney called Aerialize. And I did that as, a, as an after school uh, hobby, sport, recreational, you know, pastime, something to try and keep me fit and occupied with all the endless hours outside of nine to three. And from there, I, I maintained that uh, whilst I went into my high school years. And during year 11 and 12, I joined the Circus Oz Blackfoot program, which was the First Nations masterclass training program based in Melbourne, where we went for two weeks in the year uh, and we worked with some of the Circus Oz trainers, some of the best acrobats in Australia, uh, learning, uh, pushing ourselves. And from there, I eventually auditioned and got into NICA, which is the National Institute of Circus Arts based in Melbourne, where I studied my Bachelor of Circus Arts and graduated this year or sort of early this year. Oh, congratulations. 
Harley, who are your <coughs> inspirations you. in terms of taking on what's obviously a very uh, hard path? Who sort of both inspired you and maybe kept you on the straight and narrow as well? I don't know if I could ever like line that up to a, a one a one person. Throughout all my years, I've had lots of people guide and mentor and uh, inspire me, and that comes in all different realms as well. You know, I have acrobats who physically I think are, are brilliant and, and inspirational, and then I have artistic brains and business brains and mentors and leaders as well that I value and I, I kind of see something in them that, that makes me get out of bed in the morning that inspires me to keep going. And I think that I could I couldn't put it on a on a on a one person, but rather a network and a community of people that all support in their own unique and very valuable ways. On the year that made me, we're speaking with Indigenous circus performer Harley Mann. And Harley's the founder and artistic custodian of the Melbourne-based circus company Najanung. Uh, Harley, could you tell us about the company and how it's different from other circus companies that people might have seen? Uh, we're a First Nation-led circus company. Uh, unfortunately, from what I understand, the only one in Australia at the moment, but we're hoping to create more space within our sector so that can not be the case. But in terms of the art and the things we do, what we try to do and where we spend a lot of our time and energy is finding unique ways of, of telling stories um, that relate to diverse peoples through circus. It's funny because we're, we're a First Nations company, but I've never really thought that we ever make First Nations work. We employ black artists and as a result, we, we create cultural work. It, is, it, isn't, it isn't the other way around. Um, it's mm. not, you know, it's not about kind of going, oh, let's make something cultural, put on a bit of ochre and shake, it up, shake our legs. It's just about working with diverse stories and then, hey, presto, those artists bring that part of themselves because it's obviously a very important part into their work. And Harley, I understand that your very first show came about because you won uh, a competition which helped launch your career and the, the company. Could you tell us about that? So in Melbourne, there is a program called the Gasworks Circus Showdown, which is like a, a chance for people to um, trial a new excerpt of a show or a new idea. And then there's very kind of community-based competition that goes around. And when we're in Cert 4, we found ourselves in this sort of period of time where we had not quite a full-time amount of work. You know, we I think we were training like nine to three or something. Um, and there was that weird like two hours of us in the day of, of thinking and, and time to explore and create. And as a result, we decided to make, make a 15-minute excerpt that we put into the Gasworks Circus Showdown and fortunately won. And from there, we, we used that backing, that resources to take the show to Melbourne Fringe and then eventually Adelaide Fringe. And then immediately retired to work because I don't actually think it was any good. <laughs> it, it, it was it was it was the first work of a bunch of young eighteen year olds, and and I think all first ideas are, tend to be a little bit average. But what it did was it gave us it gave us some resources, it gave us some tools, it gave us an opportunity to move forward with a, this kind of ethos of failure and being okay with failure at the heart of what we were doing. And Harley, obviously, the last few years because of the pandemic have been very hard for anyone involved in performing arts. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And I believe that that also leads to your selection of the year that made you. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, I think the arts has, have really suffered over this time. I feel like the problems of our society that were hidden under a rug uh, have 
have been revealed. And from my perspective and, and in our context, the year that made me ask the company, whatever you kind of want to call it, was 2020 the first sort of year of the pandemic. And interestingly enough, and I, I think we we were ironically in a place of privilege, you know, I was still at, at university studying full-time. So I was on Centrelink. We we had this, we had this sense of security, right? We knew where we knew how much money we were getting every week. It didn't matter how long the lockdown went on, we were we were kind of covered. And yes, it wasn't a lot of money but it was what we'd been living on for years. And from there, we went and eventually ended up on JobKeeper. So not only were we getting a consistent wage, we were I think I was getting twice as much money on JobKeeper for that first year than I was for the previous three years. And I had time to think and kind of question and challenge. I didn't have to worry about how I was going to eat. I could kind of invest my thinking and my training and my things towards making something a little bit more. And then as a result, again, the kind of economic growth and the follow-on where we were getting lots of um, grants and opportunities coming out out of uh, COVID to to reactivate the economy and push things forward. And and what we were able to do is we, we had no overhead costs. We had no no people. Uh, we had no people. We had no things. <laughs> then all of a sudden we had yeah, a relatively consistent wage. We had opportunities to apply for new funding. We started making shows in the background and, and preparing for the moment in time when it would, it would all go back to normal-ish. And we kind of came out of 2020 having secured enough resources and funds to make a new show. And then moving into 2021, maybe, or 2022, we made another show. And essentially, off the back of all this time, we've been able to uh, create a repertoire of works that we now tour uh, and use to keep our artists employed, um, moving back into this sort of kind of COVID normal. It's really interesting that you described uh, that time of pandemic funding as, uh, if you like, a sort of incubator for a creative business. Uh, We know that JobKeeper and the like were definitely not universal uh, basic income, but it was a time where that sort of trial uh, occurred on a much broader stage. And it sounds like it's paid dividends for you, Harley. I think so. And I, and I think it's a shame that we don't acknowledge that too. I think it's one of the greatest mm. arguments and, and one of the beautiful silver linings of, of you know, all the, the trauma and stress that we went through with, with COVID is that, oh, these things do work, you know. People don't take a universal income and, and sit on their ass and, and do nothing. That's just not how, how it works. We, 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 want, we want to make, we want to see a future where we have a sense of legacy and ownership and creative input or or innovation, pioneering, all these things that we don't really get the chance to do when we're constantly in that hustle and bustle of just making a salary. Hopefully we'll 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 come to the realization of the value of different things like art and the right to eat. Um, and Harley, I understand that uh, during the COVID lockdowns, you actually managed to perform. Uh, a show. Now, in saying that, I'm not dobbing you in for breaches of the rules. It sounds like you did something <laughs> creative. Uh, could you tell us about Arterial, the show, what it was about, why it was special to you, and, and, and how you pulled off the performance? Arterial was the second work we made, and it happened as a part of the Urimboy Festival, which is the First Nations Festival in Melbourne. And it happened in a window of magicalness. We always said that the ancestors were like, yeah, this is happening, this festival. Just prior to it, uh, like maybe Rising had stopped and had been locked down and just up, maybe comedy before it and Rising after it. But essentially there was that, that weird break for about eight weeks in between lockdown, maybe three and four. 
Um, and in that time, we put together a show, um, uh, a show about the invisible connection between First Nations people. It's a thing that is is really intangible, uh, unquantifiable, but but strong and rich and 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 grounded in people and place. Uh, the show itself is about finding different ways to explore that connection and that sort of sense of interwoven stories and, and sharing that with the audience. Obviously, it's it's physical work and it's it's quite abstract. It gives you a sense of, of that feeling. It, it's sort of soaked in that idea. It's not necessarily verbatimly, you know, spat out at you and everybody who sees it will, will take away a different a different message than what I see in it. But that was that was the sort of impetus. That was the thing that we were trying to capture. In 2022, you've created the work Of the Land on Which We Meet. Could you tell us about that? Now, Of the Land on Which We Meet is probably the reverse of luck in terms of the uh, COVID pandemic. I think we were, we were commissioned by the Deadly Fringe to present that work, I think, in 2020. Uh, so that one definitely didn't go ahead. We rescheduled it to 21, didn't go ahead. We rescheduled it to 22. We got to opening night and then I got COVID. Um, oh. And so we didn't perform that either. It exists. It's made. It's kind of, you know, the shell of it. <laughs> the It just needs some people to actually see it. Um, and so I think maybe we used all our, we, all, we used all of our. Um, it cashed all that good luck credit in the previous production. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. I was like, oh yeah. Okay. But well, when, it, that, when people that, do eventually get to see of the land on which we meet, what's the story behind it? The story or the idea is, is about place. Place is a constant. The realisation that, that country and land, you're never the first to walk on it or be on it or do whatever you do on it, and you, you won't be the last either. I think there are very few places in the world where somebody else hasn't been, somebody else hasn't cried, hasn't laughed, hasn't told stories. Uh, so it's it's a work that's sort of uh, framed through generations of people, First Nations, non-First Nations, um, immigration, immigrants, and it looks looks at the sort of universality of life, all the things that we go through on a piece of land and the land is the constant. Well, we look forward to the time when uh, people will be able to meet and see of the land on <laughs> which we meet, Harley. Um, what's yes. your vision and dream for for the circus company, Najinang? That's a really good question. Um, my vision and dream, it, it shifts and it changes, obviously, but I've always thought that it is because of the, the people before me and the people that have, have done work and act as an example that I've been able to do what I've done. And my hope and dream is that the next generation can dream bigger, think wider, um, challenge more than we can. That's a great thought. And Holly, we always finish the year that made me by asking our guests to pick a piece of music to go out with. Which song have you chosen and why? I've chosen um, Blowing in the Wind by Sam Cooke. And my why is a little bit obscure and, and, and abstract, but it's, oh, it's a, one of those songs. <laughs> well, it's, it, for no, it's, not a, it's, not a, you know, it's not a profound reason. <laughs> um, it's just a song in my playlist that doesn't feel like every other, you know, you kind of get into loops of music and listen to the same thing or the, the sort of similar, same artists and things like that. And it's one of those songs that I don't know why it got added at the time it got added, but it sits very alone. Uh, it mm. sits very by itself, but it's very refreshing and kind of heartwarming to to listen to such a soulful voice in a context surrounded by all this other music that, you know, is very modern and, and a little bit similar. Well, thanks very much for bringing it back into our playlists as well. Here it is, Sam Cooke's version of Blowing in the Wind. A piece of music to go out with. Which song have you chosen and why?
I've chosen um, Blowing in the Wind by Sam Cooke. And my why is a little bit obscure and, and, and abstract, but it's, Ooh, it's a, one of those songs. <laughs> well, it's, it, for no, it's, not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a profound reason. <laughs> um, it's just a song in my playlist that doesn't feel like every other, you know, you kind of get into loops of music and listen to the same thing or the, the sort of similar, same artists and things like that. And it's one of those songs that I don't know why it got added at the time it got added, but it sits very alone. Uh, it mm. sits very by itself, but it's very refreshing and kind of heartwarming to to listen to such a soulful voice in a context surrounded by all this other music that, you know, is very modern and, and a little bit similar. Well, thanks very much for bringing it back into our playlists as well. Here it is, Sam Cooke's version of Blowing in the Wind. Yeah. Yeah. That's for me, yeah. huh. How many roads must a man walk down Before he's called a man Tell me how many seas must a white dove sail Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.